0: If you're just joining us this morning, we are going through the Gospel of John together and we are into John chapter 3. We'll finish up next week in John chapter 3. Uh, But today we're going through probably the most famous verses in the entire Bible. Uh, So it's going to be a bit of a challenge because many of these words are going to be so familiar to us that it's often hard to hear it anew. So we're looking at John chapter 3 and we're picking up where we left off last week which is in the middle of an incredible conversation between Jesus and a very smart, educated, devoutly religious man who knew the Old Testament inside and out, named Nicodemus. And Jesus is challenging this righteous man to be born again. Let's look in John chapter 3, starting in verse 13 through 21. Christian, hear God's word to us this morning. lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Christian, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. Would you be seated and keep your Bible open as we pray together? Uh, Father, we love your word and we love you. And Father, we love you because you first loved us and sent your Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, Jesus, we praise you that you are gathering for yourself people from every nation, language, and tongue, that your kingdom will never end, that it is the kingdom we are all yearning for, and that it is accessible to us only by believing in you. Father, what grace. Thank you for loving us. Help us to have the eyes to see the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of your love for us in Christ. Amen. So I don't know about you, but I feel like everybody is mad all of the time about pretty much everything. And every now and then, it starts to get to me in a somewhat deep way. And earlier this week, I have to admit, it was getting to me. You know what I mean? That, that thing about the world today, about how terrible it is, and how we're all about to kill each other, and things are awful. You know that thing you think about like every moment of your life, and when you don't think about it, you're intentionally ignoring it? Well, it got to me uh, this past week. And so what I did, uh, don't laugh at me, but I went to a very famous speech, and I read it, and then I couldn't finish it because it was just so beautiful. I started crying. I was actually kind of embarrassed. I made my wife finish reading it out loud to me because it was just so beautiful. And it's a very famous speech. You've probably heard it multiple times. Uh, It was given in 1963. Raise your hand if you were alive in 63. My mom was alive. Hooray! That's my connection to 1963, her birth year. That just made some of y'all uncomfortable. (laughs) You thought, I have grandkids older than this kid. (laughs) But in 1963, uh, somebody gave these very words, uh, which you can read. You can even watch it on YouTube this afternoon. He said these words, I have a dream that one day in Alabama, where I'm from, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King gave that address, the I Have a Dream speech, right? And we all know it. But it's powerful. Even today, it's powerful. But the tendency is because we know something, and we've heard it over and over and over again, and we've seen it painted on walls, is to ignore the power of what's being said to us. And I think in a very real and profound way, you and I are in danger of reading John 3. I mean, John 3.16 of all verses, and just having our eyes glaze over, thinking, I've already heard all of this before. Uh, But friends, John 3 has a punch to it, That will knock your socks off, and it will change you from the inside out if you really believe it. Uh, To use Jesus' words, if you have ears to hear it, and eyes to see it, and a heart to accept it. If you're that kind of person, who when the light shines, you run to the light as opposed to running away from it, this passage will change you from the inside out forever, so that you're never the same person ever again. And so with that, I know we're on the precipice of something familiar, which makes it hard to hear sometimes, which makes your eyes glaze over. I want to invite you to try to listen to John 3 as if you've never heard it before, uh, as as if you could find something new to it uh, that you can apply to your life that will change the way you see Jesus and everything else. Because after all, I mean, Jesus is like the sun, you know? We don't just see it. Everything else is illuminated by it. You know, C.S. Lewis put it this way, I believe in Christianity like I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's what it's like to see Jesus in this passage. It's not just going to illuminate who you are, it's going to shape how you see everything around you. So I know it's a familiar passage. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to answer four questions using this passage answer these four questions for you. So if you're writing it down or if you like outlines, I know I'm in the Pacific Northwest and y'all are like, boo, sermon outlines. That's not real. But if you like sermon outlines, there's like two Presbyterians that are like, oh, praise the Lord. Here comes a sermon outline. (laughs) Here are the four questions if you want them. Number one, the first question you need to answer is who is Jesus? The second question you need to think about is why did Jesus die on a cross? The third question is, why did he come to begin with? Why did he come? And the fourth question, you just got to wait till the end to get the fourth question. So who in the world is Jesus? Well, look at verse 13 with me in your lap. John 3, 13, this is Jesus speaking. So if you had a red letter Bible, these words would be in red, letting you know this is Jesus speaking to a very devout, smart, educated man An older man, Jesus in verse 10 says, he's the teacher of Israel, meaning he's not just a good Sunday school teacher, he's the guy with the Sunday school curriculum book deal that they're all learning from. And so Jesus is going to be challenging this guy with many biblical allusions because Nicodemus can handle it. So this is about to feel like a lot of Bible. I hope you're ready, but just keep this in mind. This would not have been hard for Nicodemus to keep in mind So the first thing Jesus says in verse 13 is he says, No one has ascended into heaven except, of course, the one who descended from heaven, namely the Son of Man. And you may see that that phrase right there, Son of Man, and you'll notice that Son and Man are capitalized, which means it's a proper name. And Jesus is not just saying, I am a human being. That's when he says, I am the Son of Man, or the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom, he's not saying a human being came to do it. Son of Man right there, if you look in verse 14, is capitalized, which means it's a proper name. It's almost like a title is given. And Jesus is saying that no one compares to the Son of Man. There's nobody like who I am. I am the Son of Man. And there have been people that go into heaven, right? Jesus is not denying that people go to heaven. What he's saying is there's nobody who's gone up into heaven the way that I have. Because I don't just go up into heaven. I come from heaven down, and I reveal to you who God is. I am the Son of Man who comes from heaven to reveal to you who God is. And if you're a student of the Old Testament, if you had been like Nicodemus, you would have known that the book of Daniel talks about somebody in heaven called the Son of Man. So if you've got your Bibles, please flip over to Daniel chapter 7. If you've got the blue Bible, I'll even give you the page number. It's page 884. In Daniel... This Old Testament book written hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked on the earth, that's a fact. That's not a a faith statement. You don't have to believe that Daniel was written before Jesus came into the world. That's not a faith statement. It's a fact. Daniel is the Old Testament book, and Daniel is given a vision of something incredibly unnerving and very challenging. In Daniel chapter 7, listen to what Daniel says in verse 13. Daniel says, this is Daniel 7, verse 13, written hundreds of years before Jesus of Nazareth was, entered, was born into the world. Daniel says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that is God, and he was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that what? All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Hundreds of years before Jesus entered our world, the Old Testament prophet Daniel is given a vision of somebody coming with the clouds of heaven, who's already in heaven, who is divine, and he's presented to God, and God says, I am going to give you a kingdom, and not just the nation of Israel, not just the Jewish people, but all nations and languages and tongues will serve you, because your kingdom is the kingdom to end all kingdoms. You are the king of kings, and of that kingdom there will be no end. This is the Son of Man. He comes from heaven to inaugurate a new people group, not defined by their skin color or their ethnicity or their age, but they are defined by being born into a new kingdom. And who is this Son of Man? You know, Even earlier in the Bible, earlier than Daniel, if you flip back to page 680 in your, in your Bible, If you go to Isaiah 9, Isaiah also gives a very strange prophecy. And again, this is going to be very familiar to many of you. But in case not, in Isaiah 9, Isaiah, alongside Daniel, Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet says, there's also going to be a guy who's going to reign a kingdom and everybody's going to bow the knee to this guy and his kingdom will not end. But we learn even more about who this person is. And in Isaiah 9, if you look in verse 1, Isaiah says that a light is going to shine on Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, for the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And you can keep reading, but look at verse 6, for to us, to humanity, in Galilee of all places a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Mighty God, quite the title for a human, wouldn't you say? Especially for the Bible. And look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with righteousness and justice from this time forth and forevermore. The passion of the Lord will do this. For Nicodemus, he would have had those verses memorized. He understood that in Isaiah 9, Isaiah says there's going to come a day that Messiah, the true king, is going to come. And he's going to be a human And he's going to be born. And it's going to be as if a light starts shining into our dark world. In Galilee, of all places. And his kingdom will never end. And he will reign over all peoples. Not just over Israel, but over everything. And then amazingly, Daniel. In Daniel 7, Daniel tells us. That there will be this heavenly divine being who God gives authority to be the king of the kingdom. And of his dominion, there will be no end, and all peoples will bow to this king. And when Jesus sits down with Nicodemus, he says, That's me. I am both your Lord and your king. I am the king to end all kings. I am the Son of Mary. I am fully human. I was born in in Israel. I was raised in Galilee. And yet, amazingly, I am also God the Son. See, this is who Jesus is. If you go back to John chapter 3, that's why Jesus says in John 3, 13, there's nobody like me. No one's ascended into heaven and come down like I have. I am God in human form. I mean, how does John begin his gospel? In John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So who is Jesus? Jesus is God the Son, the only Son, the only begotten Son, who took on flesh and entered our broken world, born of the Virgin born under the law, to redeem those under the curse of the law. And what he's telling Nicodemus, this very moral, very religious man, is he says, unless you believe in me, you won't even see my kingdom. You can't even imagine it in your mind. And I have come, look at verse 15. He came that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Pretty incredible, right? Now, the hard part, of course, about all of this is that we hate this idea that Jesus is objectively God, that God entered our world and he says, I am the king of the kingdom and your whole life now needs to be in service of my kingdom. And I love you in your mind, but I run the show because we live in a world where we don't even like the idea that someone can tell us what to do, Uh, but things are even worse for us because we don't even want to just believe that people have their perspectives we also want to believe that we can determine for ourselves what is true. In spite of any facts, we can say, well, the truth is like, really, it's just like a lump of dough that a baker can sort of twist and mold into whatever shape you want, and that's the truth. Uh, you know, I'm not the only one who's kind of noticed this in the world. Uh, take it from the great uh, comedian and theologian Stephen Colbert. Anyone ever watched The Late Show <laughs> with Stephen Colbert? Well, in 2005... He used to be the anchor of a TV show called the Colbert Report. And in the Colbert Report in 2005, uh, Stephen Colbert, better than anybody, put his finger on where we are in culture today, which is we don't want anybody telling us what to believe, and we certainly don't believe anybody can determine what is true. And so Colbert comes up with a word called truthiness. And I'll read you his segment. He says truthiness. Yes, that's the word of the week. Truthiness. Now, I'm sure some of the word police and the word anistas over at Webster's are going to say, hey, that's not a word. Well, anyone who knows me knows me knows me that I am no fan of dictionaries or reference books. They're all elitist, constantly telling me what is or isn't true or what did or didn't happen. Who's Britannica to tell me that the Panama Canal was finished in 1914? If I want to say it happened in 1941, that's my right. I don't trust books. They're all fact, no heart. (laughs) See, what Colbert is getting at is we think the truth is something that we learn from our gut regardless of the facts, that we can shape and mold the truth like I can chew gum in my mouth. It's this idea that we not only discern truth for ourselves, but that we decide what is true. For ourselves. And this is why Jesus is so challenging to people today. Because Jesus comes along and says, I'm not who you just want me to be. Who I am profoundly is I am God, and I am the king to end all kings. And I'm bringing about a world in which little white girls and little white boys will sit at a table with little black boys and little black girls. Because my kingdom is to be made up of people of all nations, tribes, languages, and tongues. And what's going to bring that kind of people together is bowing the knee to me, the king. Because I made everything from your toenails to your lungs to the Grand Canyon. And the unity that this world yearns for is found in bowing the knee to King Jesus he says this to Nicodemus. He says, unless you're born again, unless you believe that I am the Lord, you'll never see that. You'll never see it. You'll you'll turn away from the light and you'll go to the darkness and you'll end up hating the light. See, this is who Jesus is. The second question we need to think about is why in the world did Jesus have to die? You know, why in the world did Jesus have to die? Well, look at verse 14, because Jesus is going to shed light as to why he had to die on a cross. Isn't that strange? Couldn't God have just done it some other way? Well, look at verse 14. Jesus says in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's talking to a man steeped in the Old Testament, Nicodemus, And he's saying, everything in the Old Testament is all ultimately about me. Everything in the Old Testament is leading up to this moment. Uh, Whether it's the sacrificial system of sacrificing all of those animals, that sacrificial system is going to be realized in the ultimate sacrifice of myself. And all the priests, they were really just pointing to the ultimate priest, which is me. And Jesus is saying, even that obscure story in Numbers 21, of all places. Anyone read Numbers 21 lately in your devotional? That's where the story of the serpent on the staff comes from, Numbers 21. And in this story, Jesus says, that story was really foreshadowing and pointing to me and what I was going to do for the world. You see, in Numbers 21, God's people, I know it's hard to imagine, they were disobedient and complaining, and they were not following the light. And so the punishment was God sent serpents to bite them. And so all of God's people were being attacked by serpents. And some of them were so sick that they even started dying. And so God's people came to the Lord and said, forgive us, um, save us from ourselves and from our sin. And God told Moses, he said, take a staff and make a bronze serpent and wrap it around the staff. And whoever even just looks at it, if they can humble themselves to the point where they just are willing to even look at the bronze serpent, I'll heal them like that. They'll be instantly healed. They don't have to confess their sins to a priest. They don't have to make sacrifices. All they've got to do to be saved is humble themselves enough to look at the serpent on the staff. That's all. And that's how God's people were saved in Numbers 21. And what John is telling us in verse 314, and what Jesus is telling us is he's saying, I am the ultimate serpent on the staff. And if you want to enter the kingdom, all you have to do is humble yourself and believe in me. You must be born again. But why why did Jesus have to die on a cross? And why was it a serpent? You see, what the Bible goes on to explain is that when you and I sin, we don't just sin against each other, we sin against a holy and righteous God. And when we sin against him, he's really left with one of two options. He can punish us for our sins, or amazingly, he can take the pain of forgiveness and punishment and let it fall on himself. Think about it this way. If someone's ever deeply hurt you, I mean, I don't, I'm not talking like, you know, they stepped on your toes one time. I mean, deeply hurt you, deeply offended you you're really only left with two options, right? You can try to hurt them back just as much as they hurt you, and there's all kind of poisons you can take to accomplish that. You can cut them out of your life. You can talk badly about them. You can physically assault them. There's all kind of ways that when somebody wrongs us, we can get back at them. But no matter how you take it, the goal is to make them hurt like they've hurt you. But there's another way of living, the way of forgiveness. Forgiveness. Which is to say, I'm going to absorb the pain of everything you've done against me. And I'm not going to talk bad about you. I'm not going to try to hit you. I'm not going to hit you twice as hard as you hit me. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bear the brunt. And I'm going to forgive you. And friends, if you've ever had to do that, you'll know that forgiveness carries an enormous price tag. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing on the cross. We have sinned against God. And we can either reject God's forgiveness or, amazingly, the rod of judgment. God's wrath will fall on Jesus. The Bible explains this over and over and over again. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and all we like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus is like the serpent because when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, God treated him as if he had committed all of our sins. This is the great exchange of the cross. I give Jesus all of my sins and he takes the punishment I deserve. And he gives me his righteousness. So I never have to fear if God's mad at me. I never have to fear that God's going to cast me off into hell. I never have to fear ever really ever again because perfect love casts out all fear. God's wrath has been meted out on Christ. See, this is why Jesus had to die, because our punishment had to be paid. And amazingly, God says, I will pay it myself. He's like the serpent. Jesus is lifted up on the cross. So why would Jesus do this? Let me just finish. Why would Jesus do this? Third question. Well, John 3.16 tells us why God would do this, right? Look at verse 3.16. God does this because he so loved the world. That's it, friend. I mean, if you want to know what God's like, that is what God is like. He is willing to bear the weight of all of your sin, all of your messes, and he is willing to throw open the doors of eternal life, which can start this minute if you wanted it to. And it will last for eternity. Fellowship with the God who loves you at the table of all nations. And all you got to do is believe in Jesus and humble yourself. And Jesus tells us it's because God so loves us. What I love about John 3.16 is the world right there. You know, the Bible can mean, you know, different things based on words, right? That's not too complicated. When we think of the world, you know, maybe you're picturing like, the BBC's Planet Earth, and you ever watched that great documentary, and when you think of the world, maybe you're thinking of the big, beautiful globe, you know, thing that flies around in outer space that we all live on, you know, spaceship Earth, and it's just so dang pretty sometimes, you know, especially in the leaves. Well, that's, not when, that's not what John is getting at. When Jesus says the world, what he means is the broken part of the world, the broken humanity, the world in its mess, the world when it doesn't look good, And God still loves it. He loves it despite its sin. And that doesn't just humble us. What that does is it shows us part of the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of God. Friend, do you know that God loves you even when you are at your worst? Even then, God loves you. That's why He sent His Son to take the punishment you deserve. Last question, who's Jesus? Why did he have to die on a cross? And why did he come? The last question is just simply, who are you? You know, John 18 through 21, it's very long, but basically what Jesus is saying is there's really only two kind of people in the world. There are people who will run to the light, and they want to know Jesus, and they want this new life. They want to see the kingdom. And then there are people who cannot bring themselves to bowing the knee to King Jesus. And they live on in the dark. And the sad thing, of course, is that the longer you live in the dark, what really starts to happen is you hate the light. You know, I'm not the one saying this. This is Jesus saying there are really two paths. And eternity is just the continuation of those two paths. Hell is the place where people go who reject God in this life, and they continue rejecting him for eternity. Heaven is the place where people go who want the Lord, and they keep getting him for eternity. I know what you're thinking. Isn't there like some third way where I can be like 20% bad and like 80% good? <laughs> uh, but friends, don't miss out. There, there is not a third way. There's not a trap door to get out of this. And that's what he's pushing Nicodemus to see. You must be born again. I'm going to take the punishment of your sins, and I'm going to do it because I love you. Now, does Nicodemus get all of this? You're thinking, I don't know if I got all this just now. Did Nicodemus get all of this in John 3? Of course not. Of course he didn't grasp all of this. But later on in John, it tells us that Nicodemus came with Joseph of Arimathea and took Jesus' body down from the cross and buried him in the tomb. And I think it was then that Nicodemus realized what Jesus had done for him. Have you gotten there yet? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus that he loved us this much. Uh, Father, for those of us who already know this, would we know more and more of your love for us? Would it shape us from the inside out? And Jesus, even now, would you be calling new people from every nation, language, and tongue into your kingdom?